God has two books. The book of redemption, the Bible, and the book of creation, nature. And we read that great psalm, the 19th psalm, which begins, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament, the expanse, he stretched out the heavens. We'll talk about that next week. It blows my mind. It affects time. Why is it that stars, if we, if we believe in a recent universe, why is it that stars that are billions of light years awake would have been created in the last 6,000 years? Come back and I'll tell you. True science always agrees with the Bible because God is the author of both books. Not only is creationism the foundation of all the saving doctrines of the Bible, it's also the foundation of all true science. And why is that so? Why did the Apostle Paul here in the passage we're about to read begin with God as Creator? Acts 17, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, the Song's church. His name Mars Hill over there in Paju, South Korea. So good to have the songs with us for a few weeks. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and, and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And where does he begin? Here it is. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything. Our God is self-sufficient, amen. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply or if perchance they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as, as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day into which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, the Acropolis in Athens, Greece, many years ago. It's unique because he departed from his usual synagogue address. Some Bible scholars think that he was trying to lock horns with these heathen philosophers and match wit with wit. No, he's just beginning where every, every one of us should begin with people that are not schooled in the Bible, not literate about the Bible. Would you consider with me, first of all, belief in creationism 
is the basis for Christ's work of redemption. It's the basis for Christ's work of redemption. Would you keep your finger there in, Rome, in, in Acts chapter 17? Just turn one book over to uh, Romans chapter 1. And in verses 18 through 23, God gives the reason through His inspired apostle for His wrath being revealed against the heathen. Our God is a God of wrath. I know that's not popular preaching these days, but you can't appreciate the mercy of God unless you see it against the backdrop of the wrath of God. Begin in verse 20, for the sake of time, for the invisible things of Him, of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, and what is it that is clearly seen? Even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Oh, how so-called scientists today that reject God as Creator think they're wise. They've only begun to learn, and they're still ignoramuses. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God unto, into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up. And there's a threefold degradation we've preached about in other, at other times. The invisible things, the divine attributes. Would you consider with me, and there's so many things I could talk about, and I've got to be specific and limited in, in, in the scope of what I addressed this morning. The basis, listen carefully, the basis for man's guilt and condemnation before God is not that men have rejected the light of the gospel. That may surprise you. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 9, this is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. What is that light? Has every man received the, heard the light of the gospel or seen the light of the gospel? No. Does God write John 3.16 in the heavens? No. Are there some people that have never seen a Bible, never heard the name Jesus? Yes. So what is the basis for condemnation if they fail to believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God? The basis is they have rejected the light, and that is the light, first of all, of creation, the light of nature, enough so that they can know there must be a God. And as Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 2, they've rejected the light of conscience. Every man has a conscience. And so it's amazing how the godless media and scientists, they talk about the forces of nature. They can't bring themselves to say God. No, that's taboo. You can't say that. And so they worship and serve the creature more than the creator, as Paul said here. May I remind you that sin entered the universe when man rejected God as creator. Adam and Eve rejected God's Word. And by the way, Adam and Eve were real, literal people. They lived in a literal Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 1 is history and not literature. Some famous theologians who call themselves evangelicals are saying it's 
literature. Be on guard against that. People you're probably reading after. Genesis 1 really happened. In the Garden of Eden, Satan succeeded in getting Adam and Eve first to doubt God's Word. Yea, hath God said. That's what he dangled in front of them, first of all. And then he got them to outright reject it. And man broke God's commandments. When Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, they rejected the God who created them, and they fell. We, We can't appreciate how far they fell. And what really happened at that moment. They ran from God. Why? Because they thought they were going to die that very day. And they did die spiritually. They were separated from God. They lived to be about 900 years physically. So they lived quite a while after that physically. But they died spiritually. And the reason that Jesus became our Savior was that men and women had rebelled against Him as their Creator. He could only be our Savior because He was rejected as Creator. The entire human race fell with Adam. We all fell. Our children used to learn to read with the McGuffey Reader, and A was for Adam, and it said there on that page, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Can you imagine first graders in public schools hearing that today? If Adam's sin did not bring death, then Christ did not bring life. Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22. This is the great resurrection chapter of the Bible, and uh, we often quote it at the gravesides after funerals. But I hope we pay attention to the marvelous truth at other times. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. May I remind you, there was no death in the universe before sin entered. The Bible says so clearly in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, listen, for for as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. Death came by sin. It goes on to say, the wages of sin is death in Romans 6, verse 23. There was no death in God's universe, even among the animals. The first animals killed were the ones God killed to cover the nakedness of our sinning parents. Man would have lived forever in a pristine utopia on earth had he not sinned. And yet the theory of evolution that is just taught as fact in our schools, is diametrically opposed opposed to this tenet of Scripture, the essence of Charles Darwin's assertion in his famous book, The Bible of Evolutionists, The Origin of Species, is this, and I quote, By struggle, suffering, and death came man. Uh Uh-uh. God's Word says by man came death. And then we go to Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, and I don't, for the sake of time, I can't have you turn to every passage I refer to today, but it says there, all creation was affected by Adam's sin. 
For the creature, the creation was made subject to vanity or futility, not willingly, but by reason of Him who hath subjected the same in hope. All creation was tainted and cursed by Adam's sin. All creation, all nature groans and labors with travail and birth pangs even until now. That's why on every hand we see decay and degradation and death. In scientific terms, this is called the second law of thermodynamics. It's why things rust and tarnish and wear out. Things are always running down, becoming more and more disordered, disintegrated, instead of more and more organized. Reminds me of a true story I heard of a boy who was talking to a grisly old veteran seaman, and they were looking out on the horizon, and there was a reef out there, and there was the wreck of a ship on the reef. And the little boy turned to the old man, and he said, Mister, is that a ship? And the old man nodded, and he said, Sonny, that's what's left of her. That's what's left. And when we look at man today, when we look at creation around us, we don't see anything like it was when it left the creative hand of God, as beautiful as it still is. We see what's left. Would you consider with me, secondly, belief in creationism is the basis for true evangelism. That's brought out so clearly in this passage that we just read, Acts chapter 17 where Paul is preaching in the city of Athens. There are some people who think, oh, let's just not get off on controversial stuff like creationism versus evolution. Let's just give the gospel. Let's just present Christ to people as the Savior of the world. You can't present Christ as Savior if you don't present Him as Creator. You can't receive a partial Christ. Creationism is the basis for evangelism. That's why Paul said what he said here. And though we or anybody, even an angel from heaven, preach unto you any other gospel than that which ye have received, Paul said to the Galatians, let him be damned. Let him be accursed. Galatians 1.8. Creationism was a starting point for Paul's preaching to the Gentiles. Now, when he preached to the Jews, as I alluded to already, such as those in Thessalonica and Berea, mentioned earlier in this same chapter, he didn't labor the point of creation. Why? Because devout Jews already believed in God as creator. They accepted that. They may not believe in Christ, but they believed in God as creator. Paul just insisted with them. He just insisted that Jesus was the Christ, as we see in verse 3 of the same chapter. But when he preached to pagan Gentiles, he used a different method. He described God as creator, God that made the world. In fact, in the epistles of of Paul, which are addressed primarily to Gentiles, he mentions Genesis, he alludes to Genesis no less than 100 times, proving that he believed the Genesis record of origins. He did it here with the Athenians. By the way, get the setting. I didn't have time to paint the backdrop earlier. Paul is alone here in the city of Athens. 
which was once the pride of the Grecian world, but it had reached its zenith, its golden age, several hundred years previously. He's come here fresh from having been mercilessly beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, as we read in chapter 16. He was ridden out on a rail by a crowd of thugs in Thessalonica. He was proactively evacuated from Berea by beloved brethren before another riot could break out. So here he is in Athens waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him. He looks around in this great venerated center of culture, and he sees more idols than he sees people. There were more idols in Athens than there were residents. And his spirit is stirred within him. His righteous indignation is all stirred up. Paul is thinking, this just isn't right. There's only one God worthy of this veneration. So he tangles with some philosophers there on the Acropolis, which was a place where they gathered to pool their ignorance. They were all evolutionists. There were the Epicureans, they were atheists. And there were the Stoics who were pantheists, but they were all evolutionists. And so where does he begin? He begins in verse 24, God who made the world and all things therein. By the way, God did make the world. God made the earth. And did you know that the Bible says in Psalm 115, verse 16, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's. We've been talking about the stunning images of the heavens coming back from the James Webb telescope. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. Don't wonder if there's intelligent life on some other planet. No, the earth has he given to the children of men. And after laying this foundation of creationism, Paul goes on to preach Christ and the resurrection there in verses 30 and 31. He concludes by combining the truth of the resurrection with a mandate in verse 30 that God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And he says, in effect, this same man that Jesus, that was raised from the dead by God, is going to be your judge. And you can know he'll be your judge because God did raise him from the dead. Paul did the same thing with the pagan idolaters at Lystra, the city where he was stoned, as it's recorded in chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. He said, we preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities, these idols, turn to the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. So within the context of God's creation and His work of sustaining all things, Paul comes to this conclusion, God has not left Himself without a witness, verse 17. That is essentially what Paul told the Romans in chapter 1, that the creation, as we looked at, declares that which may be known of God, even His eternal power and Godhead, which was a revelation that the Gentile heathen rejected, and so they were condemned by God. Consider with me, saving faith in Christ is predicated on faith. Faith not only in the atonement, but it's predicated on faith in creation, the creation work of God. Jesus clearly believed in the creation work 
of the worlds, the creation of the worlds. Mark 10, verse 6, but from the beginning of the creation, God hath made them male and female. Jesus accepted, listen carefully, the historical accuracy and the divine inspiration of the first few chapters of Genesis. He took them literally, whether Tim Keller does or not. He referred to Abel as the first martyr and the first prophet. He compared the days of Noah just before the great flood with the days just prior to his own return, would get future, when he's going to judge the world. He mentioned the beginning of the creation which God created in Mark chapter 13, verse 19. He referred to Satan's lie in the Garden of Eden, John 8, verse 44. Jesus believed Genesis. Jesus believed creation. It is clear from the New Testament that saving faith in Christ must first of all be faith in His creation. Let me ask you something. If you can't take Genesis 1-1 literally, how can you believe John 3-16? It is the unanimous testimony of the Word of God that God is the Creator. And He did it through Christ. Hebrews 11, verse 3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. The Word of God. This verse makes it clear that belief in creation is predicated on what we call divine fiat. Now, I'm not talking about some super automobile, okay? I hope you know what the word fiat really means. Fiat is speaking something into existence when it refers to creation. And God spoke the worlds into existence. And so here in this great faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, it begins with divine fiat. The worlds were framed by the Word of God. And how does it end as we come into the 12th chapter, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith? It begins. It begins by recognizing Him as Creator. It ends by recognizing Him as the Savior and the coming King. Then you go to the Gospel of John and that marvelous prologue, which is worthy of being etched in letters of gold on background of silver. John 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and this life was the light of man. All things were made by Him. And then John goes on to give the purpose for his gospel. It's bookended here in chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. It's absolutely essential to believe John 1, 1 through 3, if you're going to believe John 20, 31. And then you have Revelation 14, 6 through 7, which links the everlasting gospel with him who made heaven and earth. Listen to the word of God. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and sea and the fountain of waters." Did you see what I saw in that passage? The judge is the creator. The final judge is the creator. It's amazing how the last two chapters of the Bible 
closely parallel the first two. Revelation 21 and 22 describe the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, while Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 1 begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the first heavens and the earth. In both we see reference made to the personal presence of the Creator God, to the curse because of sin, to the tree of life, and to the river of life. In the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible. Ephesians 3 verse 9, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. If you look at the verses before that, what's that mystery? It's talking about the mystery that God has, uh, has given in the church which is composed of both Jews and Gentiles who have believed the gospel. It clearly links revelatory truth to faith in Christ's creative work. You can't divorce the two. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. This is why I believe in evolution is so pernicious. It's not just innocent or a harmless mistake. A belief in evolution closes the door to salvation because it knocks out the whole foundation of the gospel. Some of you will recognize the name Francis Schaeffer, the prominent Presbyterian theologian and philosopher of the 20th century, founded Labrie over in Switzerland. Edith Schaeffer was his wife. Francis Schaeffer made the statement that if he had only 60 minutes, one hour, to talk to an unbeliever, He would spend the first 55 minutes talking about creation and what it means for humanity to have been made in the image of God, and then he would use the last five minutes explaining the way of salvation. So I bring you to the third point of my message, and that is this. Belief in creationism is utterly incompatible with the theory of evolution. There can be no marriage between the two. Evolution and the Bible are mutually exclusive. Either there exists a personal God who created the universe and still sovereignly rules over it, or else everything was just made by blind chance, the Big Bang. And that's completely irrational. Did you know something? The number of random genetic factors involved in just the evolution of a one-celled organism, the amoeba, to a tapeworm, which is not very far down the chain. We're not talking about going from an amoeba to a complex animal like a mammal. But just the number of genetic, random genetic factors involved in going from an amoeba to a tapeworm would be comparable to putting a monkey at a typewriter and allowing him to strike the keys at random, and he accidentally produces a perfectly spelled dictionary. Let me break this down even further. The perniciousness of the theory of evolution. Belief in the theory of evolution undermines the credibility and the authority of the Bible. Don't talk to me about theistic evolution. That's an oxymoron. If the Bible is unscientific and inaccurate historically, how can we trust it in matters of salvation? 
to borrow the wording of Jesus to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 12. John 3, 12, mark that reference down. Jesus said, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall I believe? How shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? If Genesis 1, 1 is not true when it says, in the beginning God created, then how do we have any reliable answer to any of the basic questions of life? How did we get here? Why are we here? We have no promise of salvation from our sin. If Genesis 1 verse 1 is not true, we might as well assume that there's no God who exists at all, which is precisely the assumption behind the modern evolutionary theory, whether they are honest enough to tell you that or not. theory of evolution is pernicious. It undermines the truth of the Bible. It's totally incompatible with creationism because, secondly, naturalism, which is the underlying religious philosophy behind evolution, rejects the supernatural, just leaves God out completely. You say, what is naturalism, Pastor? All right, let me put it where you can understand it. The philosophy of naturalism basically says this, Nothing times nothing equals everything. Instead of in the beginning, God. Naturalism says in the beginning, matter. It says that everything that we see came about by natural processes that we can still observe. Now that sounds good. And they express it in, you know, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, blah, blah, blah. It sounds real sophisticated. Well, let me ask you something. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in Hebrews 11, verse 3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Read the rest of it. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. It's not processes we still observe. That's not how things got here. Naturalism ignores the effects of creation, it ignores the curse, it ignores the flood, it rejects miracles, it rejects catastrophic changes like the flood. The great, listen, the great granddaddy work of modern creationism, and I thank God for it, is the book, The Genesis Flood, co-authored by Henry Morris and John Whitcomb. You ought to have that book in your library, and yet modern evangelicals are spurning that work. I'm warning you, folks, people we're quoting, people that, who we're reading after, don't believe the foundation of creationism. Naturalism puts struggle and death ahead of man because it contends that man evolved as a result of the survival of the fittest. But the Bible insists that, as we've already said, death came as a result of man's sin. Belief in evolution fosters moral relativism and chaos. You wonder why people are living like animals? Because they think we're just at the top of the animal chain. If human beings are nothing more than animals in the process of evolving, then we have no moral accountability than an animal that eats and sleeps and kills and mates whenever it feels like it. And so the lie of evolution is behind all lack of moral restraint and all cheapening of human life. If God did not create us, then we're disposable. Human life is not sacred. 
Belief in evolution is behind the social evils of our day. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not just trying to be sensational. The lie of evolution is behind the social evils of our day. It's behind racism. You know what the original title of Charles Darwin's book that goes by the, the title The Origin of Species, the, the Bible of Evolution, do you know what his original title was? It's a big, long title. Let me read it. Here it is. On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection and the Preservation of the Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. When's the last time mainstream media has told you that? That's the dirty little secret that evolutionists don't want you to know. Charles Darwin, the patron saint, the patriarch of evolution, believed that different races were at different evolutionary distances from the apes. He put blacks at the bottom. He put Caucasians at the top. And although racism has been around for a long time, it was Darwin's theory of evolution that first gave it scientific plausibility. Yet we read from Acts chapter 17, verse 26, a little while ago, God is made of one blood all the nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. So who are you going to accept? The racist Darwin? Or the God who loves all the world who gave the Bible? Evolution, the theory of evolution is behind communism and fascism. Karl Marx, the wicked, lazy mastermind behind communism, inscribed a copy of his signature work, Das Kapital, to Charles Darwin with these words to my devoted admirer. They were twin spirits. They were kindred spirits. Adolf Hitler, though he was anti-communist, was bitterly anti-Christian and anti-God all of his life. Adolf Hitler specifically cited biological evolution as the rationale for his attempts to systematically exterminate the, the Jews that he considered to be an inferior race. Nazism and fascism were the fruits of the evolutionary tree. Why did Adolf Hitler believe the Jews were disposable? Because he believed the lie of evolution. Evolution is behind existentialism, which is the pessimistic philosophy articulated in advance by Friedrich Nietzsche that regards human existence as unexplainable and emphasizes man's isolation in a hostile and indifferent universe. I know I'm making you drink out of a fire hose here with a lot of this stuff at the last. But get the CD, listen to the archived uh, podcast. It's important, these things that have been brought out. I'm coming to a close, I promise. Three weeks before the most famous evolutionist of the 20th century, a man by the name of Carl Sagan. Maybe you recognize that name. Maybe that's before your time. But three weeks before he died, famous evolutionist, astronomer, scientist, author, he died in 1996 at the age 62, but he was interviewed by ABC anchor Ted Koppel on Nightline. Some of you remember Nightline, three weeks before he died. And Ted Koppel asked Carl Sagan this, Dr. Sagan, do you have any pearls of wisdom to give to the human race? 
Everybody bowed down to the shrine in name of Sagan. This is his reply, and I quote verbatim. Carl Sagan said this. He knows better now. We live on a hunk of rock and metal that circles a humdrum star that is one of 400 billion stars making up the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions of galaxies in the universe. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great developing cosmic dark. In this vast obscurity, listen, Sagan said, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves, end of quote. That's the way the great evolutionary champion of the 20th century died. Does my God give me any better hope than that in his inspired word? Oh, yes, I'm so glad. I can tell you he does. And let me start with a postulate from Sagan's characterization of my place in the vast universe. Yes, I'll concede, I am a lonely speck on a hunk of rock and metal in a galaxy that is just one of billions in the known universe. That's true, but yet this God who made that vast universe that bears His glory so spectacularly also made me in His image and wonder of wonders, He thinks about me. And he invaded this world to redeem me. He invaded this speck. Oh, what condescension. And he has set his glory above the heavens. And he desires that I may be with him forever to behold that glory. Hallelujah. Which will you believe? The Bible or Carl Sagan? Let's pray. Father, thank you for setting your love upon me. Thank you for saving me with everything that I am and have. Would you help me to show forth your greatness and proclaim loudly and clearly the hope of the gospel? Help us to understand and believe and defend the doctrine of creation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before we even sing our hymn.